Over the last few decades, perhaps no one has impacted healthy lifestyles more than Deepak Chopra. While some of his ideas and recommendations are criticized, Chopra has been incredibly effective at popularizing meditation, yoga, and other practices that benefit the health and well-being of vast numbers of people every day. His work has led many people, including scientists and doctors, to embrace new ways of thinking about alternative medicine, the power of mind over body, and the malleability of the aging process. I think much of his popularity stems from the frequent frustration that people have with the modern medical establishment, which is often perceived as overly conservative and too slow to adopt the most recent research findings. Some say that Chopra's impact is such that our culture no longer recognizes him as a human being, but as a pervasive symbol of personal health and spiritual growth. Last week, I had a chance to confirm that Chopra is, in fact, a human being and deserving of his icon status when I talked with him for the podcast. He relayed ideas that were wise and ancient, yet highly relevant to the modern world, with the fluidity and ease of someone discussing the weather. Showing no sign of slowing down at age 76, he described his prolific work, including two influential books in the past year and a range of technologies he's developing, like chatbots and apps for optimal well-being, less loneliness, and better mental health. Take a listen and meditate afterward in the intellectual glow of Chopra's wisdom. As he told me, if you don't have time to meditate once per day, you probably need to meditate twice per day. I'm Matt Fuchs. This is the Making Sense of Science podcast. Hi, Deepak. It's wonderful to meet you, and I couldn't be more excited for our conversation. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, as usual, always. And thanks for having me. Great. Uh, thanks for joining the podcast. So let's get right into it. You're obviously a leading thinker and authority on meditation, and many people say they don't have time for it. And that's partly due to our busy lifestyles and spending half of one's time at the office might be a really good obstacle for many people. I'm really curious about your thoughts on some employers who are creating spaces at work for meditation sometimes called meditation pods, and maybe other promising ways to make meditation more convenient and accessible to more people. If someone says they don't have time for meditation, um, even once a day, they need to do it at least twice a day. The very fact that they say they don't have time for themselves means they have sacrificed their self for their selfie. That's my short answer for no, not having time. Um, but now let's get into meditation, uh, which has thousands of years of tradition, at least in Eastern Western Eastern wisdom traditions, but also in the West, you know, with Benedictine monks and centering prayers. So meditation has had a history of approximately, I would say, a few thousand years, or at least 2,000 years. Um, recently, meditation has become very popular because uh, of um, the research that shows uh, its ability to bring us to a state of homeostasis or self-regulation. So when the mind quietens down from experiencing sensations, sense perceptions, images, feelings, and thoughts, uh, ultimately you end up uh, with the source of these experiences, which in Eastern wisdom traditions is referred to as pure consciousness, which means consciousness without any contents of experience. When we see this uh, state, 
Uh, and when we explore the state, and uh, the Chopra Foundation has done a lot of research on this, mm-hmm. uh, amazing things happen. So, you know, we were able to publish a paper um, in Nature um, um, Translational Psychiatry, which is a peer-reviewed premium journal from England. Um, what we were, and this study was done at a Chopra uh, Center retreat for one week, we actually showed that genes that cause uh, self-regulation or homeostasis, uh, which is another word for returning to our baseline state of healing, all those genes went up in their activity, some 17-fold. The enzyme telomerase that regulates the length of telomeres, which uh, is an indication of our biological age, went up by 40%. So our uh, our collaborators in the study were Elizabeth Blackburn, who's a Nobel laureate. She discovered um, telomerase, the enzyme that regulates the length of telomeres. But the, we had other collaborators, Harvard Medical School, UC, investigators from Harvard Medical School, UCSF, Scripps, Mount Sinai in New York and NYU, not Mount Sinai, sorry, NYU and Duke. And, uh, you know, some people were actually, when we published the study, even asked one of the investigators, now that you have seen these remarkable effects of meditation on gene expression, telomerase, uh, do you meditate? And the investigator from, um, from New York <laughs> said, I don't. I don't meditate. Are you planning to? He said, no, I'm not planning to. So, but you just showed us this amazing study. And he said, yeah, because now that I know the biochemical pathways, I'm going to make drugs out of this. So, you know, everybody has- Always looking for a quick fix. Huh? Yeah, always looking for a quick fix. So I realized that, you know, uh, this is where humanity is going right now. Always looking for a quick fix. And by the way, he did leave his academic position and has joined a drug company. And I'm sure he'll be able to identify chemical pathways and and also biochemical activities that to some extent replicate the effects of meditation. What would be lost there? I'm not saying that... uh... (laughs) That he's, it's right to try to look to drugs to uh, provide a meditative uh, experience or, or results. But what what do we lose when we try to, you know, have quick fixes like that, or you know, specifically a drug that delivered the effects of meditation? What would be if you know as uh, one chemical pathway, like say serotonin, and then you create something that enhances or boosts serotonin in the brain, you can. E- experience some euphoria or you can experience one aspect of the meditative experience and that's bound to happen whether we like it or not mm-hmm. what you lose is the holistic effect of meditation because those pathways that we are talking about are entangled they work together they cohere together as one activity in a biological organism which no drug can replicate But what we're going to share right now is immersive experience can replicate that. You know, if you you have an immersive experience, and I just finished uh, creating one for the same people who created the Van Gogh experiences in these uh, 
you know, um, in many locations. Uh, it's a company called Lighthouse. And I've just created uh, an immersive experience where you just enter the museum um, and uh, with your eyes open, you can embed yourself in an environment that can replicate, even with eyes open, the experiences of uh, deep meditation. And uh, we can go further. You don't need to enter a museum. You can do that now through new technologies and what we might call augmented reality or uh, immersive reality or, um, uh, or uh, you know, just regular, what do you call uh, um, artificial intelligence created experience that can help you dive deeper. So many years ago, I created a technology called um, uh, called the instant. Uh, you know, it was a light and sound show um, that I had tentatively called the Dream Weaver. But you had to wear glasses for it. And you know, right now there are many uh, attempts right now with various uh, technology companies that are looking at VR and. Uh, augmented reality and also immersive experiences where you probably won't need a headset. So that led me to this, uh, exploring this idea with OpenSeed and see if we could actually uh, create meditations uh, specifically for OpenSeed's immersive experiences. And, you know, as we, we go into this, I think you'll see many applications for mental health issues and also uh, for many millions of people seeking help through either psychedelics or other immersive experiences, you can create them now digitally and um, you can create the right environment. And there are many ways of doing it. Yeah, I'm really interested in the pros and cons of some of these technologies for meditation. Um, I mean, having a, a sort of a sealed off place to meditate in the workplace seems to be like a great opportunity for employees to um, relax during the workday. You know, hopefully they're meditate, doing meditation in the right way and getting as much benefit out of it as possible. But I'm curious, you know, when you when a person seals themselves off in this chamber, uh, I've, I've seen you speak about some of the benefits of group meditation and how it can reinforce people's desire to make meditation a daily practice and contribute to what I believe you've called a meditation lifestyle. Do you think that meditation pods where the person is closing the door behind themselves and uh, you know they're not going to be meditating with other people might not be as beneficial as some other programs at work where employees could be meditating as a group? So you're right, Matt. You know, the traditional forms of meditation espoused in both Eastern and Western wisdom traditions. And, and there's a whole range of them. You know, there's what we call reflective inquiry. There's something called uh, uh, awareness of perceptual activity, awareness of the body, interoceptive awareness, uh, mantra meditation, transcendence, self um, uh, self uh, awareness awareness of awareness so there are hundreds of techniques and the original intention of meditation 
was actually to go beyond the body-mind and experience your transcendent self, which led to what was called a religious experience. Now, the word religion is out of fashion, so it's very fashionable to say, uh, you know, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious. But the spiritual and religious experience are the same. Three components. Number one, um, I, finding an identity uh, which is transcendent beyond space and time. Number one. Number two, the emergence of platonic values like truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, not as moral injunct injunctions as a result of that transcendent experience. And number three, most important, um, the loss of the fear of death. That's the essential religious or spiritual experience in Islam, in Sufism, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, no matter what. It's, of course, codified differently, expressed differently, with different metaphors. That experience can never be created um, artificially. You have to actually get to the source of all experience through these amazing technologies that were created by seers and geniuses of spirituality, I would say spiritual savants, uh, through the ages, you know, from Jesus Christ to the Buddha to Sufi Islam and many aspects of other traditions. However, closing your eyes in an open seed uh, environment or, you know, being is very useful, I think, in a doctor's office waiting for your turn, in a dentist's office, in an airport, uh, you know, next to the whatever these massage uh, um, uh, uh, facilities are opening up. There are many, many applications to help people dive deeper into the science of immersive environments for both mental health and wellness, but not for what spiritual traditions call enlightenment. So that caveat is always there. Yeah, hopefully it's not an either or. And, you know, maybe some of these same workplaces that have the meditation pods have other programs that can be uh, uh, facilitating the person's path toward, you know, multiple goals, including that deeper goal of uh, enlightenment and transcendence. And you, you mentioned going beyond the self and the, the transcendent self. And it really reminds me of your metahuman book, which I really enjoyed last year. You, you mentioned, um, framed the, the metahuman concept, I believe, around going beyond the self. What does it mean to be a metahuman and how can people incorporate this fascinating idea into their lives? Okay, so first, in order to answer what does it mean to be a metahuman, we have to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? And so right now, look at the human conditioned mind, um, which is the divided um, social mind bamboozled by human constructs and human experiences that create separation. And... Um, combined with what I call uh, diabolical creativity. We have created a world um, which has climate change as a result of our behavior. We have created war, terrorism, instruments of death like nuclear weapons and cyber warfare now and biological warfare. We've destroyed the ecosystem 
we've caused the extinction of species and uh, there is immense social injustice in the world immense uh, uh, racial injustice immense gender injustice and if you look at the collective conversation right now it's getting worse i mean everything is polarized no matter what it is and so i think to wake up to meta human is literally means going beyond the conditioned mind and realize that first of all there's no such thing as peace of mind that's an oxymoron the mind is never at peace it's always vacillating uh, uh, between pleasure and pain and what we call you know um, the desire to 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 have only pleasure and no pain when in fact all experience mental experience is by contrast so there's no such thing as peace of mind but there's an underlying background which is called awareness um and awareness is not synonymous with the mind awareness of the mind is not the mind i when i say i am aware of my thoughts then the i that is speaking is not the thoughts it's actually the awareness of thoughts so our awareness by itself is independent of the movement of the mind and it's therefore free of experience awareness is free of experience and awareness being free of experience is able to orchestrate theoretically any experience it wants both sensory and motor and all experience comes in the form of sensations sense perceptions images feelings and thoughts the acronym for that would be sift s i f t sensations means all sensations including sense perceptions then images which is the basis of imagination feelings which are the basis of emotion and thought there's no experience outside of that so what we do is as human beings and this is part of our evolution i think we can create mental constructs uh, around these perceptual activities and then we create the idea of a mind body and universe we create the idea in fact we never experience a universe we experience only our perceptions and then we we uh, we in, interpret them and we create models of reality that we call mind body and universe you know the great physicist john wheeler said there's no out there out there or uh, the boundary of a boundary is boundaryless is zero so the universe or reality is unbounded or transcendent unbounded without boundaries outward in uh, so called outward in the cosmos and so called inward in the atom but atoms molecules force fields gravity these are human constructs around modes of knowing and experience and what we do is we recycle through the ages through narrative through stories through mythology and even through science we recycle the same concepts and then they slowly evolve to expand our range of experience as our awareness expands so waking up to meta human is to realize that you are not the conditioned mind that there is a domain of awareness 
which is unconditioned, number one. Therefore, it is a field of infinite possibilities. Number two, it's a field of uh, creativity. Creativity is not an aspect of the mind. The mind is an expression of creativity. So creativity comes from the source of the mind. And so that same field of awareness has infinite creativity. Uh, for every thought you've had, there are infinite more to be had. For every image you've created, there are infinite more to be created. So it's a field of infinite creativity. The third thing is it's a field of um, unpredictability. If I asked you to predict your next thought, you wouldn't be able to do so. In fact, you cannot predict any experience in the future. We live and breathe in the unknown, pretending it's the known. The known only happens in now as the unknown appears to us as the known unfolding every moment. So meditation is also surrender to unpredictability. And then it's a field of correlation. It correlates space-time events to create a coherent experience of existence, which appears continuous. On the other hand, our perceptual activity is actually a snapshot of experience. Every time you look at something, that's a snapshot. Every time you hear something, that's a snapshot, or you might say a frame of experience. The continuity to the experience is given by consciousness in the form of a story. And then we live out those stories, we call it life. Unfortunately, those stories are recycled thousands for thousands of years, and there's no evolution. Now in Eastern uh, wisdom traditions, that's called karmic bondage. And so waking up to a metahuman is to be free of this uh, uh, karma, which is the history of past experiences recycling as present experiences. And how do you, that's fascinating. Thanks, thank you for walking me through that. That's a lot and processing it. Um, how do you think about free will in that process? Because, uh, you know, it's, most of the time it sounds to me like you're describing humanity as a state of free will and that free will would be important in order to escape that conditioned mind and pursue infinite possibilities. But then, I mean, other times when, you know, you're going over how we can't predict our next thought, it sort of sounds to me more rooted in that the neuroscience view that you know our, our thoughts are sort of originating deep down in in our in our biology and in our neurons and uh, that we don't have free will. So do you, do you believe in free will? Is that part an important part of you the know, process? I, I, I've been in several discourses and debates around this with neuroscientists and also experts in consciousness studies. So here's what the traditional hardcore neuroscientists uh, and scientists would say. Uh, they would say actually that we do not have free will. We are governed by the principles of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, the laws of physics. Therefore, there's no free will. The experience that we have free will is actually a, a is a is a kind of a is a delusion this is what hardcore scientists would say and they have lots of good arguments you know because not only um, neurological studies show that before you have an intention your brain is already orchestrating the intention before you actually um, are aware of the intention so 
hardcore scientists today say there's no free will. There are other hardcore scientists say there's an experience of free will, but that's a delusion. That's what you know. A lot of uh, skeptics would also say. Now, um, from the consciousness perspective, also the average person has no free will because they're so bamboozled by social constructs. You know, they're like bundles of conditioned reflexes and nerves, constantly being triggered by people and circumstance into predictable outcomes. You you hear an insulting remark and you're offended for the rest of your life. Uh, you hear a flattering remark and you feel joyful. It, it means that you have no free will. You're at the mercy of every stranger, every situation, every circumstance, every event, um, all the time. 99.99% of the time, therefore, there's no creativity. Now, the opposite of free will I call creativity. I don't actually call uh, um, the freedom to create. Uh, so that happens only when you become fully awake to what is beyond the conditioned mind, the transcendent mind, or you know, when you transcend your self-image, your ego identity, and you enter this domain of awareness, which is infinite possibilities. Now you have infinite freedom, but there comes a point when you realize that actually the highest intelligence is choiceless awareness, which means that um, you don't need to exercise a choice because the right or most evolutionary choice comes to you spontaneously. It's called transpersonal spontaneity. So it comes to you in the moment for the situation as it happens. That choiceless awareness comes from what today uh, some consciousness experts are calling metacognition. This idea is not new. The Indian philosopher J. Krishnamurti uh, said the highest intelligence is to observe yourself without judgment. And if you observe yourself without judgment, the self reveals it you reveals itself to you in the form of insight, intuition, creativity, higher consciousness, and transcendence. So choiceless awareness is allowing experience to unfold and appear as the known in the moment with your participation just being a subtle intention to know what the right thought, speech, behavior is in the moment. So right now, as I'm speaking to you, I'm not thinking about my answers. You know, I'm, I'm being spontaneous. And so what do I mean when I say I am being spontaneous? Uh, it's not my conditioned mind. I have to listen to you. And then in that stillness, the right response occurs. So we move from what we might say, uh, no free will to infinite possibilities. And then actually, even in the infinite possibilities, we surrender to choiceless awareness or transpersonal spontaneity. Now, I know that's not the usual answer you would get, but there are endless discourses on free will. And I think they're all based on a particular background of training. So, you know, even among specialists, scientists and philosophers 
and consciousness experts, they all have different opinions around this topic based on how they were trained in their particular field. Yeah, it's you, yeah you, you read my mind. I, I was thinking of uh, like thinking fast and slow and you know, Kahneman's book or theory that it's sort of what you're describing is the inverse of that, right? Because yes. the, 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 uh, the first mode of thinking for him is the more intuitive, uh, more susceptible to fallacy way of thinking. And then once you kind of like apply, you know, the, the rational cognitive layer, that, that second mode of thinking, that's when you maybe can catch some of those heuristics. What you're describing is sort of sort of the reverse of that, right? Which I, I think is- I am really describing the reverse of that. And, you know, I'm just looking- at uh, this new issue of the new scientist, the universe as we've never seen before. And, you know, it has a very nice uh, interview uh, in it with uh, with a cosmologist who's, uh, let me find her right. Just I'm just pulling out the reference. Her name is uh, Chanda Pressord Weinstein, assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty member uh, in women's studies at the University of New Hampshire. And this is an interview where she says she trusts her mathematical intuition more than her perceptual intuition, uh, which is very interesting because intuition itself is going beyond the rational mind. Rational, What we call the rational mind is, is based on... Um, empirical observations and perception, which is a very species-specific mode of knowing and experience, beyond that is a deeper mind. You know, and I don't know what to call it. It's the matrix of consciousness in which uh, we have access to creativity and insight and intuition. And then we develop different modes of intuitive uh, knowledge, including mathematics. You know, we say mathematics describes the nature of the universe. Well, where does mathematics exist if not in human consciousness? Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting point. I, I also think of the uh, the same way that you're describing of, you know, this um, sort of intuitive way of thinking that knows better is uh Sort of a, a less profound or deep example is uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book The Inner Self of Tennis, The Inner Game of Tennis. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, and I became friends with the author for a while. Okay, yeah, I would imagine the two of you would would get along. It sounds very. Uh, it's it's a similar uh, way of describing sort of like this duality between you know thinking you're you're once you apply that cognitive layer of thought you you really mess up your your tennis game and you just trust your yourself to uh, naturally do what your arm wants to do when the ball is coming to you and don't think about it. And by the way, Matt, that that is true of all peak experiences and all athletes. You know, I used to, a long time ago, I knew Joe, Joe Namath when he was in the peak of his career. And he said he never thought about where to go. He, he would find himself in the right place at the right time before the ball arrived. It was like the game was playing through him. The game was being played out. That's all great performance, performers, musicians, athletes, gymnasts. But even, you know, great, uh, I would say, creative gymnasts like Einstein and Beethoven, they tapped into an intelligence 
which is more contextual, more relational, more holistic, doesn't have a win-lose orientation, and goes beyond linear cause-effect relationships, which the rational mind tries to do so. In fact, the rational mind actually is the most inaccurate mind, I would say, because it's based on the magical lies of perception. No perception we have is inherently true. After all, you know, my perception tells me the earth is flat. We don't believe that anymore. My perception tells me that the ground I'm standing on is stationary and I know it's dizzying, it's moving at dizzying speeds and hurtling through space at thousands of miles an hour. My perception tells me you're a three-dimensional anatomical figure in the theater of space and time when in reality you're proportionately as void as intergalactic space. You don't have any boundaries whatsoever. So, you know, while rational thought helps us create technology, it only extends the virtual reality we are already in. It does not give access to fundamental truth, which can only come by going to the source of all experience, which includes rational thought, but also includes imagination and emotions and sensory perceptions and other sensations. Yeah, that, that's a really helpful clarification. And and you, I should say you have a number of very practical approaches and exercises in MetaHuman for kind of um, tapping tapping into, into that energy and, um, you know, the, including the rational mind as, as being part of you know that uh, those uh, those tools that are so important to uh, becoming metahuman, uh, and you also have your in addition to your books, which are uh, sort of their own form of technology. Uh, you have an important uh, form of technology for meditation, the Chopra meditation and well-being app that I wanted to, to to bring up. And one of the things that I really like about your app is that it's for all ages, and there's there's a for kids section including meditations for kids, by kids, uh, as the father of a seven-year-old. I, um, I'm, I'm really interested in this. I have tried to get my, my son to meditate. He uh, has absolutely no interest in it. Um, how can children maybe specifically benefit from meditation? And, and at what age can they really start to appreciate meditation? So first of all, thanks for mentioning the app. We have a million downloads already, and I hope to see more. People are definitely benefiting from the app. Now, when it comes to children, yes, we have meditations for children. My rule has been the following. Um, when a child is up to five years, before a child is five years old, uh, you know, they, they can't be talked into anything and should not be talked into anything. Uh, children less than five years old only need four things. Attention, which means deep listening, affection, deep love and caring, appreciation, noticing the gift that they are and the unique gift that they are, and acceptance, which means not trying to change them, to your idea of how they should be, uh, appreciating their unique nature. At the age of five years, I ask children if they can shut up for five minutes every day. And it's almost like a game. You know, let's... Uh, be silent, verbally silent, of course, for five minutes. You increase that to six minutes when they're six, seven when they're seven. So, you know, by the time uh, they are 10, they get into the habit of keeping quiet or not speaking 
for 10 minutes and they feel a sense of inner calm as a result. At 10 years, you can start introducing them to some of the other techniques, whether it's you know self-reflection, who am I, what do I want, what's my purpose, what am I grateful for, and then these mindfulness practices and ultimately transcendence. So, and now I'm also seeing the emergence of uh, gaming as uh, it's going to come sooner or later, gaming for expanding your awareness or meditative experiences or creativity. So, you know, technology cannot be stopped, Matt. It's part of our evolution. And so if we deny technology, we become irrelevant. On the other hand, as we upgrade our technologies, we also have to go back to what was the original motivation. And the original motivation always was, you know, an ancient ancient dictum, know thyself. It's right there on the temple of Apollo. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, that's encouraging sort of like at different stages of childhood, you can start to introduce um, different exercises or, um, you know, practices that can eventually lead the, the child to, into a meditative practice when they're they're ready. It, it seems like that sequential approach would would be could be effective. And uh, while we're talking about technology, Steve keeps coming up. You're, you're very involved in in technology um, for for achieving these goals, I did want to ask about NeverAlone.Love, which I know is a very important um, project uh, for you and and for the the people that you're helping through it. Um, And uh, I wanted to ask specifically about, you know, I believe NeverAlone.Love has a chatbot called PeeWee. And I I, I find these chatbots really interesting for a variety of purposes. How have you found through PeeWee that AI can be helpful when someone is having suicidal thoughts, depression, or anxiety? So PeeWee is the name originally, the, the nickname for a recording artist who died from suicide um, uh, three, four years ago, and now three, a little over three years ago. She was the sister of an actress called Gabriella Wright, who's co-founder of NeverAlone.Love. And Gabriella was teaching meditation and Buddhism courses in prisons when I met her, but she wanted to actually expand um, her her. Uh, her service, if I may call that, which was all volunteer into suicide prevention because her sister had died from uh, suicide and the name was, her name was PV. But now we also say uh, PV stands for uh, for uh, personalized interaction with conscious intent or something like that, you know, personalized interaction with conscious intent. So PV is an emotional chatbot and you've probably seen it. She has now identified uh, 6,000 suicide uh, and de-escalated 6,000 suicide um, ideations. She's having conversations simultaneously uh, right now, um, with uh, approximately 20 million people. And it's been an emo- a remarkable experience because we learned that suicide is the second most common cause of death in teens. And teens are more comfortable talking to a machine than to a human being because they don't feel judged. This is one thing we learned. And we also learned that, you know, 
a good therapist does that too. As a deep listener, doesn't judge you and actually gives you advice only as it helps you, but not in the form of uh, judgment of whether what you're thinking is right or wrong or what your inner dialogue is. We're now experimenting with another uh, entity that is called Digital Deepak, and you can check Digital Deepak uh, online right now if you want. It's digitaldeepak.ai. And we are thinking um, maybe train uh, Digital Deepak in the same uh, uh, in the same uh, interventions, but with a little more resource into um, you know um, how we can help the person. We're also thinking of creating blockchain and uh, what you call crypto payments for those who can't afford it. So we democratize, you know, uh, mental well-being across the globe for people who can't afford to see a therapist. A uh, lot of uh, uh, initiatives on the way in that direction. That's amazing. And those 6,000 de-escalations that you mentioned, is that through connecting people? Does, does Wee in those instances um, yes. connect? So when, um, yeah, when Wee identifies the possible risk, person at risk, at the back end, there are, um, there are counselors that we refer to. And we're doing the same thing for PTSD in... Uh, in veterans right now. We have a program called HERO that we're developing for veterans. And uh, PV, of course, is mostly focused on teenagers. But then back-end counselors, for which we hope to pay as well. We are partnering with something called Earth Fund, who are happy to uh, you know, kind of generate the funds um, locally in different parts of the world to address these issues so we can help people who can't afford these expensive therapies um, uh, help pay for them. It's just so incredible that the stigma of mental health problems in our society is such that people and maybe specifically teens might feel at least initially more comfortable talking with an AI. Um, you know, it, it makes me think that maybe Peewee should be training in addition Kiwi could should be training people to you know empathize more with yes. maybe an AI could be good at that too. Yeah, uh, help with the stigma. Uh, I know that we are um, running out of time, Deepak. I did want to ask about aging uh, as my last question. I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, I've read that you are planning to live well past one hundred. Uh, it seems like. A great goal. I, I share I, that goal. I said that like 35 years ago. I'm 76 now and I'm in really good health. And, you know, what we are learning about aging now is quite remarkable. So if you go and look at, you know, books like um, uh, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To by Sinclair, David Sinclair, the Harvard geneticist, um, you will see that actually human aging is quite flexible. Uh, you can extend it. You can extend health span. You can extend lifespan. You can prevent 95% of chronic disease. Only less than 5% of chronic disease is connected to or as a result of what we call fully penetrant genes. So there are genes that guarantee disease, like say the BRCA gene for breast cancer guarantees that you'll get breast cancer. Angelina Jolie had her breasts removed 
because she had that uh, gene, the Baraka gene. But what the public doesn't know at the moment, and actually a lot of physicians don't know at the moment, that less than 5% of genes predict disease. The rest are epigenetically modifiable. And that means that you don't, you know, the, the future of well-being, even for the fully predictable genes, by the way, we now have on the horizon something called gene editing. So very soon, or even right now, you'll be able to read the barcode of a gene, just like you read the barcode of anything or your soap or your email, and you'll be able to delete the defective gene and insert the right gene. So voila, you've cured the disease. Theoretically, that's going to happen very soon, gene editing. But what people don't realize is that affects only 5% of people. The rest is lifestyle, quality of sleep, stress management, vagal stimulation, biological rhythms, emotions, relationships, and you know our daily activity, eating, breathing, digestion, metabolism, elimination, sensory experience, and then, of course, our inner world of thoughts, feelings, emotions, desires. It's very complex uh, on the one hand, but it's also very simple on the other hand. I've created what I call the seven pillars of well-being. So the first is sleep. I mean, not necessarily in order of importance. The second is stress management. The third is exercise. The fourth is emotions and relationships. The fifth is biological rhythms. The sixth is self-reflection. And ultimately, the seventh is transcendence. So, you know, we can, we can take our well-being in our own hands. And we should not put any limits on when we will die. Theoretically, right now, the maximum age is about 120. Uh, people have lived that long. Those are recorded ages. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the person 120 is fully uh, fully cognitively there. And so you need to be uh, not only extend lifespan, but health span. The professor I trained with, you know, uh, Dr. Seymour Reichlin, who trained me uh, in my neuroendocrine fellowship, I did my internal medicine, then went on to study neuroendocrinology. So my professor, Seymour Reichlin, is now 97 years old. He, When he finds a snake in his garden, he dissects the brain looking for neurochemicals. And uh, he was one of the first people to identify, along with others, of course, the molecules of emotion that we call neuropeptides. So here he is, my professor. I just a few months ago had lunch with him at Balthazar um, uh, in New York City. Uh, he was here on a sabbatical, and he comes every year in the summer and even does some classes at NYU, 96, and argues with me about the hard problem of consciousness. So if my professor can do it, I think I have a chance. Well, you have a, a great aging role model. My my uh, my aging role model is my grandmother, who's ninety nine. But uh, we we don't talk about the hard problem of consciousness. <laughs> so, <laughs> your aging role model might, might be better in some way. I talk about tennis with, uh, with my my grandmother. She doesn't play it though; she just watches it. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, your your seven pillars of of health is sort of remind me of Mount Maslow's hierarchy of needs a little bit. I mean, there's yes, yes, there's absolutely. 
Yeah, that, that, that stood out to me a little bit. And my last question, why did you, um, why did you pick out yoga as, as really seemed like it was your focus of your uh, most recent book, Abundance, that you published a few months ago? Why is yoga so important to inner joy as you describe it in your book? I wondered, is it because it combines some of those pillars that you just laid out? I mean, know, it seems the to... book Abundance was actually inspired by a Bob Marley quote, uh, a lyric where he said, some people are so poor, all they have is money. So uh, I think some people do confuse their net worth with their self-worth. So yoga, actually, the original word for yoga is... Um, uh, yuj in uh, Sanskrit, which means union with the source of all experience, which is union with your spirit or your awareness or your consciousness. And in yoga, traditionally, there are eight limbs. Uh, you know, these days, everybody makes a brand out of everything. So there's a brand called Ashtanga Yoga. But actually, eight limbs of yoga include um, both um, social and emotional intelligence. They include breathing techniques. They include interoceptive awareness. They include meditation, focused awareness, and transcendence. And uh, when we practice these techniques, this is exactly what you're saying. You go through all the levels of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, except Maslow identified five, yoga identifies seven. In fact, when you look at Maslow's notes before he died, he was already writing about self-transcendence. But the self that they talk about is the ego identity transcendence. So he was on to this seven levels. And yoga is about seven levels. Then the book Abundance is about seven levels. And I'm actually at the end of this year, I'm issuing a new book called um, Living in the Light, Yoga for self realization, which is an extension of where we go from meta-human and total meditation and, um, and other stuff that I've written about. Yoga simply means union. And, you know, it's also the origin of the English word yoke. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light in the midst of all the suffering, he's talking, in my opinion, about union with the divine that is ultimately masquerading as the conditioned human self. Deepak, it's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed and benefited from your prolific writing over the years. I can't wait for uh, the book you just described at the end of this year. As always, your, your thoughts on these topics are, are really fascinating. And congratulations on all of the important work that you've done and are continuing to do through your ideas and through technology. And thank you for making time to talk with me. Matt, I'm grateful for this opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time. <laughs>